On December 12, 2016, social media influencers and celebrities Kendall Jenner, Emily Ratajkowski, and Bella Hadid, among numerous others, all posted a video to their Instagram feeds consisting of an orange square and a logo depicting stylized flames. In the video, supermodel Bella Hadid and other models were shown running around a tropical beach in what was the beginning of an extensive social media marketing campaign for Fire Festival a music festival that promised an incredibly luxurious experience over the course of two weekends located on an exclusive island in the Bahamas. The music festival, the brainchild of Billy McFarland and celebrity partner, rapper Ja Rule, was intended to be a promotional vehicle for McFarland's Fire app, an application that would allow people to book musical talent. Setting his sights impossibly high, McFarland envisioned an incredibly exclusive and expensive music festival whereby attendees would be fed cuisine made by celebrity chefs, given accommodations in so-called luxury geodesic domes, and private airfare to and from the island from Miami, Florida. More than these promises, however, was McFarland's implied promise that, as an attendee, festival goers would be able to hopnob with an incredible array of celebrities and social media influencers in what was sure to be the biggest and most exclusive party of the year, the party that everyone would be talking about for years to come. By the time the social media campaign was underway, McFarlane and Ja Rule were marketing a music festival unlike any other, complete with a full 33 musical acts who were set to perform. Tickets for the experience began to sell quickly. Fire Festival, which was scheduled to be held over two weekends in April and May of 2017, quickly started experiencing organizational and planning problems. The first problem that festival organizers ran into was the planned location of the festival, that being Norman's Cay, a small island that once belonged to drug kingpin Carlos Lider Rivas, a once powerful member of Pablo Escobar's Medellin drug cartel. McFarland and Ja Rule were able to lease the island from the current owners for the festival with the express agreement that no mention would be made about the island's connection to the infamous drug kingpin or his association with Pablo Escobar in any of the marketing for the festival. An agreement was made and McFarland and Ja Rule secured the first location for Fire Festival. McFarland and Ja Rule quickly began what would become a legendary social media marketing campaign spending an exorbitant amount of money to hire supermodels and other social media influencers to promote the music festival. With the legend of Norman's K too good to be left out, McFarlane and Ja Rule promoted the island as being, quote, once owned by Pablo Escobar, clearly violating the agreement that was made with the island's owners and inflating the island's connection to the drug kingpin. The owners of Norman's K quickly canceled the agreement with McFarland and Ja Rule, leaving festival organizers without a location a scant four months before the festival was dated to begin. By this time, however, tickets, which cost anywhere between $1,500 to $12,000, were selling quickly due to the social media blitz engineered by McFarland and Ja Rule. To cover for the loss of the original Fire Festival location, McFarland and Ja Rule hurriedly secured the use of Roker's Point an abandoned Sandals resort development on Great Exuma. It was reported that McFarland never announced the change of locations, continuing to market the island as Fire K, and altering maps of the site to make it appear that the point was indeed a private island, and insisting that it was once owned by Pablo Escobar. The reality was that the new location lacked even the most basic amenities to include running water and sewage facilities to support such a large gathering of concert goers. By the time McFarland and Ja Rule were able to secure the second location for the festival, organizers had only two months to plan and organize the event. While the marketing campaign continued to sell tickets in the United States, 
problems plague the planning of the festival at every turn, with McFarlane and Ja Rule continuing to push forward even in the face of unsurmountable logistical problems. Problems included a medical services company that backed out at the last minute, problems securing a food contract for the festival with one-sixth of the original budget intended, and problems erecting the luxury villas that were promised which had to be replaced by FEMA tents. McFarlane, desperately trying to keep the festival together, tried to secure more financing by making fire festivals cashless, whereby attendees would only be able to purchase goods and services by scanning a bracelet pre-loaded with money onto them. In reality, McFarlane was using much of the money that was loaded into the cashless system by concert goers to pay back a portion of a short-term loan he had received to help keep the fire festival afloat during the last weeks before the event. The night before the festival was slated to begin, a thunderstorm struck soaking the tents and mattresses that had been laid out for the guests. On the morning of April 27, 2017, the first flights arriving from Miami began to arrive in Great Exuma for the music festival. The colossal failure of the event quickly became the stuff of legends, with the festival planning falling apart in one of the most spectacular party debacles ever witnessed. Early arrivals to the festival site were then given excessive amounts of alcohol by hired models in order for local workers to continue working on the festival site, which was not ready to host the event. That afternoon, Blink-182 announced that they would be pulling out of the festival, claiming that the resources available would not be able to ensure they could give their fans a quality musical experience. This kicked off a steady loss of musical talent as other acts also started to back out. As McFarland and others attempted to continue on with the festival, it quickly became obvious to those who had made it to the island that the whole experience was a fraud. In what would become the most ubiquitous image of the festival, one concert goer posted a picture to his Twitter feed that showed a wilted cheese sandwich that he was given in place of the so-called five-star food created by celebrity chefs. Of the 500 who did arrive for the festival, reports of a stampede to acquire rain-soaked tents and the theft of mattresses began to hit the social media feeds. To continue to propel the disaster into legendary status, all other accommodations on the island of Great Exuma were booked due to a scheduling conflict with Fire Festival and the Exuma Regatta, a famous annual yacht race. In addition to this, many festival goers also lacked cash, having been conned by McFarland to put money on the cashless bracelets intended for the festival. Many festival goers tried desperately to leave the island, only to find out that the Bahamian government had issued an order barring any planes from landing at the airport, again leaving hundreds of people stranded. Two different documentaries about the now infamous Fire Festival were released in 2019 to include the Netflix movie Fire, The Greatest Party That Never Happened, and Hulu's Fire Fraud. In the aftermath, numerous celebrities quickly rushed to distance themselves from McFarlane as it soon became apparent that civil and even criminal charges would result from the doomed music festival. In the end, a myriad of lawsuits resulted from the event, with one class action lawsuit representing more than 150 plaintiffs. On June 30, 2017, Billy McFarlane was arrested and charged with one count of wire fraud. In October of 2018, McFarland was sentenced to six years in prison and ordered to forfeit a total of $26 million. In one of the most unbelievable details about the planning and execution of the event, it was rumored that a full six weeks or so before the festival began, with glaring cracks in the planning beginning to show, a plan was devised to postpone the event until the next year, giving the organizers time to create the experience that had been promised by the extensive social media campaign. 
According to one former organizer who worked for McFarland, a marketing executive who also worked on the Doom Festival uttered the now famous words, Let's just do it and be legends, man. This episode is about Fire Festival. And welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono and Dr. David Morelos. So, David, this is a case we have been fascinated with basically since it happened. Yeah. I think we've seen every documentary and read maybe not every article, but many of them on Fire Festival. To me, it's kind of like that whole train wreck phenomenon. Like, I, I just can't seem to look away. Yeah. So before we dive into this episode, we just wanted to say that we've never met Billy McFarland, even though we know he's at a federal prison. So neither of us have any insider knowledge about him or this case. It's just an interesting case that we wanted to talk about for a while. Plus, our listener, Pranav, asked us to cover a white-collar crime, and I would say that this one fits the bill. Yeah, wire fraud is generally considered a white-collar crime. So what I wanted to talk about with regard to this case is the whole issue of con men. What I didn't realize until I was doing research for this episode, and maybe it's naive of me, but the term con man is actually short for confidence man. And what con men do is called the confidence game. So in preparation for this episode, I actually read an incredibly interesting book called The Confidence Game, Why We Fall For It Every Time published by science writer and psychologist Maria Konnikova in 2016. She was actually interviewed in the Hulu documentary Fire Fraud. Yeah, when we went and and watched that one a second time, we realized that she was actually one of the people that they did interview to commentate on Billy McFarland. Yeah, and she's like one of the experts on con men. So while I feel like all of us have, you know, theories about why con men do what they do, Konnikova does a brilliant job of breaking the confidence game down and talking about the psychology behind it. Anyway, I think that stories of con men often capture the public's interest and intention. I'm not sure if it's because all of us think, oh, I'd never let something like that happen to me, or because deep down inside all of us know that we've probably been conned or will be conned at some point in our lives. So some of the statistics that I found suggested that over 30 million Americans are the victims of financial fraud every year. And this is likely an underestimate given that many people may not even know they've been swindled, or if they do, they may be unlikely to report it because of embarrassment or shame. That's a whole lot of people. I also read that the perpetrators are often not prosecuted 
Because oftentimes the con doesn't actually break the law. So in these types of situations, the victims are often willingly giving away their money, so it's not technically illegal. Now, of course, if it turns out they gave up their money based on a lie, that would be considered fraud, which is a crime. And applied in the case of Fire Festival, we can see that that was clearly a fraud and criminal behavior. But other times, cons may be set up as something where there is risk involved, like an investment or something. And when it quote-unquote fails, people just assume they took a risk and lost. So if the confidence scheme is so prevalent, who are the people who are likely to be victims? So bad news, David. Every single one of us is susceptible to some extent to being conned. I was thinking back to times that I would think that I have been conned. And I mean, usually it's something really small. But even the small things, you know, are still their cons. I remember one time getting conned out of uh, gasoline when I was in Mexico. I had rented a Jeep and I was driving it. Because in, in Mexico, at some of the gas stations, you're not allowed to pump your own gas. They have people that are there doing it. And they're the only ones that are allowed to touch the pumps. Uh-huh. And so I told this guy, you know, $10. He wound up giving me 10 pesos worth of. and But he still took the $10, which was worth significantly more. Yeah, I bet you got like three drops of gasoline or something. Yeah, I mean, it was less than a quarter <laughs> of a tank. But again, that's like, like, you know, that's an example of a con. I got conned. You know, I got swindled, so to, so to speak. But yeah. it was, you know, it's a real small example, but just another example of the times that I think back to it. I'm like, yeah, I usually get taken like that at least once every time I travel. Yeah, and I, I think that that kind of makes sense because you're maybe not familiar with the way that things are supposed to be. But I, I think that's true that all of us, if we are honest with ourselves and we look back on it, have probably been, you know, we've fallen victim to a con at some point in our lives. Right. Again, it was a small thing. But if you if this guy is pulling that con on hundreds of tourists, you know, a week or a month then that's going to add up to a sizable amount of money. That's a pretty big con that he's got going. For sure. You know? Um, Successful con men are going to pay more attention to situational factors when looking for a victim or a mark, as they're sometimes called. So they look for people who are in emotionally vulnerable situations. So think of things like losing a job or going through a divorce or something of that manner. And I think that many of us would say, yeah, you know, that makes sense, right? When people are down and out, they're probably more likely to go along with some get-rich-quick scheme. But it turns out that it's not just negative situations or emotions that make people more vulnerable to being conned. Positive situations can also be problematic as well. So con men may actually look for people going through positive emotional situations, So think about it. When someone gets a new job where they're making more money or they start a new romantic relationship, they might be overly optimistic and less skeptical during these periods, which can also open them up to being conned. So really, anytime we're going through a period of change or transition, we're at increased risk. That actually makes perfect sense because in substance abuse treatment, those are the times when a person in recovery has to be the most on guard for a potential relapse. It's at incredibly low points in their life, but also incredibly high points in their life as well. And it's for the exact same reason. They start to become overly optimistic. Mm-hmm. and they Or are, desperate, right, on the other end. Right, or desperate on the other, on the other side of it. Right, and because everybody knows that thing when the chips are down, things are, are hard, they're tough right. in life. But when we're also 
up, you know, because of a, just like you said, a, a job promotion or a new relationship or something like that, it can be very easy to become overly optimistic and think that, well, you know, this is not going to be a big deal or whatever. And, and then suddenly it becomes a path to relapse in substance abuse. So that that point actually makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, and it's not something that we think about that we need to be more on guard when we're in a very positive state of mind. Exactly. So, you know, the other thing is that con men are really good at promising people what they want, you know, what they've been looking for. You know the saying, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is? Sure. Yeah, I think we've all probably said that to someone at some point in our lives. But that's the problem right there. We tend to be really good at identifying things that are too good to be true when it's happening to someone else. But we're not so good at doing this for ourselves. Instead, when good things happen to us, we tend to tell ourselves that, you know, our ship has come in, right? That the tables are finally turning, luck is on our side, and that we deserve whatever it is. Yeah. And this way of thinking, again, makes us vulnerable to being conned. And, you know, I can relate to this. When we were watching the documentaries on Fire Festival, we kept saying that we would have been smarter, right? We would have seen the red flags and backed <laughs> out, right? But the reality is that had we been in that situation, there's a good chance we wouldn't, that we would have gotten on that plane too. Yeah. Well, especially after spending that kind of money, right? You, they've already had spent the money on the tickets and everything like that. And so even though they saw all these red flags, mm -hmm. they're already invested in it. Yeah, so they still want to believe that this is actually going to be able to take place. Yeah, it's actually called the sunken costs fallacy that, you know, when you've already invested a lot of resources into a way of thinking about something or a belief about something, um, that you're less likely to change course because you don't want to lose what you've already invested or you don't want to admit to yourself that you made, you know, that big of a mistake. Right. But I'm thinking, you know, you and I, we probably would have ended up on that island eating cheese sandwiches and sleeping in FEMA tents just like everybody else. <laughs> you know, so so course, in other words, in other words, what you're saying is that this was not based on somebody's intelligence. Like the people who were duped weren't duped because they were stupid. Right. Yeah. That, that, it, it had nothing to do with their intelligence level. It had more to do with the fact that this is the way basic human psychology works. Right. And you know what our saving grace was, Stephen? Hmm. We don't have that kind of money to spend on a music festival. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's, that's the reason that we that we would never be conned into right. that. Right, right. And, and music festivals are not our thing anyway. No. That, that's something that's a, yeah, we're way too, the music festival like that is an introvert's nightmare. Yeah, totally. Anyway, in reading Konakava's book, it made me think about another book, which is actually one of my favorite ones called The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker. So if you haven't ever read it, I highly recommend it. Anyway, in the book, he talks about how our socialization has basically trained us not to trust our instincts. We would rather be polite than speak up when something doesn't feel right. And I think this may also be at play when we talk about con men. We may talk ourselves out of our suspicions, not only because we want the con being sold to us, on some level at least, but also because we don't want to offend people. It's kind of weird to think about because I think that if we asked most people, they would say that they would have no problem standing up for themselves if they thought, you know, they were being conned. Yet with so many people being conned all the time, it suggests that we're not doing this. So as we talked about in our interview with Dr. Rob and Dr. Louie, 
That evolutionary drive to remain in the good graces of our social group can trump our rational decision-making. Even if we consciously know something is not right or that it's untrue, there's a very strong pull for us to go along with others. And if a con man presents himself as being knowledgeable, confident, and competent, we might feel that we aren't in a place to question them. One of the other things that Konakova discusses is that con artists go out of their way to connect with other people, so it makes it seem like they have a lot in common with their marks. As humans, we tend to trust people who are similar to us more than those who we perceive as different. They may go about this in very general ways, and it can be something as simple as mirroring someone's body language or saying you also enjoy whatever they happen to be discussing. And if you think about this, these are things that all of us do, right? It's human nature to want to be liked, accepted, and valued by others. We may do these things kind of unconsciously to fit in, or more consciously when we're trying to get something from other people. And depending on the situation, we might refer to people doing these things as being really skillful rather than manipulative. One of the best-selling self-help books of all time is How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Oh yeah, everybody remembers that book. Yeah. This book promises to teach you how to make other people like you, increase your influence over other people, and be a better salesperson. And I think salespeople are great examples. Really effective ones are great at getting people to want to buy whatever they're selling. Now, sometimes this could raise to the level of a con, but if you can really convince the other person that they really like, want, and enjoy what you're selling, both sides are happy. And assuming the buyer didn't experience negative consequences, such as buying something he or she couldn't afford, then everyone wins. Even when we think about therapy, we do what is called rapport building. We want to get clients to buy into whatever change we are trying to help them make. There's a whole area of psychology that focuses on this, and it's called motivational interviewing. At the end of the day, most therapists would not call what they do conning because they're trying to help people buy into the changes that are beneficial to them in the long run. So while what McFarland did was clearly dishonest and illegal, it's interesting to think that some of the tactics he used are things that all of us use to some extent from time to time. The hope is that we don't use it for nefarious reasons and that we have the empathy to the potential consequences of our actions and don't do things that require others to be harmed for our own benefit. So, you know, I think this topic, just like all of the topics that we discuss, you know, at first blush seems like, oh, this is all bad and wrong and conning is wrong and and bad. And, and while there certainly are situations where those behaviors are very detrimental to people, you know, the, there's also a light side and that some of those tactics or skills can be used for good, too. So, I, you know, it's just always so complicated. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, when you were talking about that, I, I didn't make that connection because that's what in substance abuse treatment that we are often called on to do. We use motivational interviewing as particularly in the very beginning of the program to get those in the program to buy into what it is we're trying to do, which is change beliefs, essentially, or change their sort of self-perception, and in turn, change their behaviors. Yeah, and I would never call that a con because you're not doing that for your own benefit, right? right? You're not getting anything out of it. You're doing that to help them. Right. But that's exactly what it is. I have to be a salesman. 
Right. You know what I mean? I, I never really looked at it that way, but now that you mention it, that's it. That makes perfect sense. So, you know, I wanted to start out by acknowledging that Fire Festival was probably the Schadenfreude event of the decade. Yeah. And, yeah. You know? <laughs> And I mean, anyone who can afford to spend anywhere from $1,500 to something like, I think there were prices going up to $250,000 Wow! to attend a music festival seems like they are begging to be made fun of. And there certainly was no shortage of this feeling of schadenfreude when news of the fire Festival disaster broke through social media and was picked up by the news outlets. It was almost as if people were supremely satisfied by the idea that a bunch of rich millennials got ripped off and trapped on a small island in the Bahamas after being promised a ridiculously luxurious musical festival and social experience. I have to admit, I've watched both documentaries on Fire Festival, one on Netflix and one on Hulu, and although I wouldn't say I derive pleasure necessarily from watching them, it's just like you said, Jessica, it's the proverbial train wreck that you cannot look away from. I can't look away. I know. I know. I feel I feel you. Yeah. I'm right there with you. This thing was such a colossal failure that you just have to stop and marvel at the sheer hubris of those involved with it, starting at the top, of course, with Billy McFarland. So I'm going to reiterate what you said earlier, Jessica, that Billy McFarland is currently a federal inmate, and he is incarcerated in the Federal Bureau of Prisons, which is who Jessica and I currently work for. That being said, neither one of us have actually met McFarland, nor do we have any insider, so to speak, information about him or any potential psychological diagnosis that isn't already a matter of public record. So hopefully that doesn't disappoint anyone. But even if we did have insider information about him, we wouldn't be able to talk about it anyway because of our own work. So everything we're about to say is in regard to public information and beyond that, just our own opinions on the matter. The other thing that I wanted to start off by saying is... I acknowledge that for a long time, it seemed it was sort of in vogue to bag on millennials. I'm not exactly sure why, but this generation seemed to be for a good 10 years or so, the generation that others sort of love to hate. So I kind of wanted to start the conversation there with this idea that because all this happened to millennials, primarily privileged ones, that it somehow quickly became a joke of sorts that people talk about as if it were some kind of cosmic comeuppance or some kind of karmic justice being dished out. So I wanted to take a look at why this was. Why was it that so many people seemed to have it out for this group of people and how was this represented by those who were involved in Fire Festival? By now, everyone is pretty familiar with McFarland and this music festival, which was supposed to be a promotional vehicle for an application in order to book music and other forms of talent. I guess Ja Rule went on to continue to promote this app currently under a different name. But basically, you can get on the app, pay a bunch of money, and someone famous shows up to your party or event or whatever. Okay, so that's simple enough. What made this whole event so interesting, I mean, they did do two documentaries about it, not just one, but two. Right. Was the idea that it so perfectly encompassed what so many of us have come to believe about the millennial generation. In other words, if there are stereotypes about a single age group, the Fire Festival debacle represented the very worst of it. It was steeped in privilege, built on promises that seemed vapid to the core. It utilized and captured everything that many think is wrong with the Instagram generation, where the image is what matters, so completely at the expense of any kind of true substance. This, it seems, is what many seem to think of the millennial generation. All show, no go. They want the very best but with very little understanding of the work it takes to get there. 
Again, that seems to me the critique, at least. I'll be the first to say that I don't know if any of that is actually true about millennials. So Jessica, you and I are Gen Xers, but only just barely. I was born in 76, you in 79. Thanks for telling everyone our age. <laughs> well, they, it, you know, it shows. With all of our references, you can't get away with it. You know, we give it away on every episode, I'm oh, sure. Oh, that's true. All right. Which puts you right on that bubble between those generations. And I remember a lot of issues that boomers had with us growing up. We were the slacker generation. If any one of our listeners out there gets a chance, check out the show Portlandia. Because it really does a good job of making fun of Gen Xer stereotypes including in the first episode where they do the whole The Dream of the 90s is Alive in Portland song number. There's even one part where Carrie Brownstein talks about giving up clowning as if that's something that her character on the show actually studied seriously. And it's a hilarious portrayal of every Gen X stereotype essentially out there. So what's your favorite Gen X stereotype, Jess? Do you have one? You know, I guess it's just that slacker stereotype. Like, that cracks me up because... I think now they say that Gen Xers work more hours than any other generation. Oh, wow. So I, I just, I and I would have to check the, the sources on that, but it just kind of cracks me up that we were considered the ones that laid around and did nothing. Right. And that's the one that I remember the most as well, the slacker label. I used to think that the idea was funny because it really alluded to the idea that as a generation, we wanted different things than our parents did. And the way we expressed our own values quickly became the subject of their irritation. In the 90s, music became this sort of voice for what a great many of us were feeling, having lived through the fear and sort of disaffected 1980s where everyone was about liberal self-interest and into the violence and chaos that followed in the 1990s. Grunge music, among other things, including what used to be called techno, became how we sort of voiced our feelings about what was going on in the world at the time. So right from the start, music seems to occupy a very special place in every generation's heart as being representative of a particular time that we, for whatever reason, hold dear to. We all hold certain kinds of music close to us, wouldn't you say? Yes, I would agree. Yeah. And in some way, it's usually because we feel it represents a time in our life, especially when we were young, when those things were important to us. As we get older, we start caring about other things like getting married, having children, retirement plans, health insurance, and that kind of stuff. But when you're younger, we care about things like music as a way of defining ourselves. So let's take it back real quick to Dr. Rob and Dr. Louie and their book, Hardwired. So I said this before, but I think it bears repeating, that the implications of the work go a lot further than we had a chance to really talk about during the episode. So here's an example of that, that being how our most primitive part of our brain interacts with the digital age. Getting back to my point about music, music seems to represent something deeper in our psyche, that being the basic human need for social connection. As time moves forward, we find newer and different ways to divide ourselves up and claim a social tribe, so to speak. But music seems to be a very clear definer about which group you belong to. And when we were growing up, you could usually tell what group someone fell into by the way they dressed. The heavy metal people always wore black t-shirts with like Metallica written on them or something like that. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, the grunge kids were all about the flannels and tied around the waist and the Doc Martens. The hip-hop crowd was about the baggy jeans and the urban wear, you know, as did a lot of the rave kids. Right. So quick story. I used to go to raves with my friends in high school, and as I know you did too, Jess. Yes, I did. Yeah. So, And of course, there was this kind of dress that w- ravers wore, right? 
I, I remember one day when I quite suddenly realized that I was not that or that I was not in that crowd anymore when I showed up wearing what I liked to wear, which was just flat black. I had on black docks. Well, they weren't really docks because I don't think I could afford Doc Martens back then. <laughs> but I had on boots that looked like them. Yeah. Right? Okay. Black jeans and I had a black bomber's jacket. To me, that was the alternative style that I was used to. The social circle that the look was associated with was this sort of goth light, sort of new wave look, I guess you would call it. Okay. Yeah. And I had the haircut and was mildly intellectual, which was also sort of part of that role as well. So anyway, literally overnight, what I thought was cool was suddenly out. Needless to say, I didn't hit many raves after that realization. There were a few clubs where a 1980s alternative was played, and so I'd like to gravitate towards those. In college, it was the same thing, only it was way more the grunge scene, which really seemed to me a bunch of kids trying really hard to look disaffected and poor, even though they really weren't. I ran into some trust fund kids in college who were doing a very good job of convincing others that they were poor. Anyway, we use these signals to help define ourselves as part of a group, especially when we're young and trying to create and claim an identity. Every generation does this in an attempt to leave the previous generation in the dust. And if we're being honest with ourselves, that's what we want to happen. We want the younger generation to push forward into places where we, the older generation, have not. An example of this was the way the Gen Xers pushed back on the idea of rigid sexual identity, such as the gay, bi, or straight identity. I think our generation did a lot to push this movement forward, that is, the acceptance of people who claim these labels. The younger generations today seem to have taken this even further and are pushing boundaries with gender identity, which is the new frontier. Regardless of what you might think about this gender questioning and challenging that the young people are engaging in, we have to acknowledge that this is one way that they are setting themselves apart and defining themselves against the backdrop of the generations that have come before them. So I'm just going to interject. So I did some research <clears throat> while you were talking right there about Generation X. Turns out we don't work the most hours. It's actually <laughs> millennials. So my bad. I guess we are the slacker generation after all. Maybe so. Maybe it was an, <laughs> maybe it was a, a, an accurate stereotype. Yeah. One thing that we cannot deny is the effect that technology has had on how this is being done. The millennials were the first generation to grow up solidly in the digital age, which is something that Xers sort of straddled. But the same drives, a la Dr. Rob and Dr. Louie, are ever present. That is the idea that we have deeply held physiological drives to belong to a social group of some sort, or a tribe. For us, again, we signaled our tribe by the clothing we wore and the music we listened to. But today, technology has accelerated and exploited this drive for young people. The basic premise, I would argue, was on full display at Fire Festival, with Billy McFarlane fully using his knowledge of what drives millennials to his own advantage. But it's the same basic drive that everyone has deep in their primitive part of their brain. The need to belong and be accepted by a group of people, whoever that may be for you, right? Only now we have these technologies that amplify this exponentially through a constant barrage of what other more glamorous and beautiful people are doing that you are not. But we want to belong, so we spend all this time investing in this image because the image is what's important. Social media has raised the bar for this in ways we haven't even begun to understand yet. And we cannot deny that there is and will continue to be a huge dark side to this. In our interview with Antonio about Santa Morte, he stated that he thought social media could be worse than nuclear weapons. 
And now we are starting to see how this technology can be used to perpetuate a scam that appeals to our most basic drives psychologically, that is, to belong to an exclusive group of some sort. And you know, I mean, this is just one situation where they got caught. But think about how many other cons are going on that are exploiting that very thing. That oh, yeah. Maybe we may, we may not even know about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure there are thousands of them out there. You know, one of the things that, that caught me, and I don't remember off the top of the, my head what show it was, but I'm sure, I'm pretty sure it was on Netflix or Hulu, uh, but it was where they were speaking to a number of so-called influencers um, or people who were paid to advertise things simply because they have a large following on social media, usually Instagram. So, okay, fine. But what interested me had to do with the idea that so many of these so-called influencers was that many of them actually claimed to have a message or a philosophical grounding for their online presence. When asked what this philosophical orientation was, each one of them, to the last one, said positivity. Huh. Okay. Hmm. Well, obviously, there's nothing wrong with being positive, right? Right. Okay, but that's hardly a message, I would argue, or a philosophical basis to justify an online presence with millions of followers. So it seems to me like the message, quote-unquote, isn't what's important here. It's the image. Look at my life. You, on some level, want to be me. So follow me. All right. Now, I'm not saying this is wrong in any way, or am I bagging on influencers or whatever. That's not what I'm trying to do, just to be clear. I do think we have to acknowledge, however, that Billy McFarland seems to represent the most extreme version of this idea, however, which is positivity above and beyond all else. And if we're just positive, things will work out. And Fire Festival isn't the only place we've seen this. I think Elizabeth Holmes and the whole Theranos medical debacle, which again is this idea that if we just think positively, we'll somehow make it work. Yeah, yeah. good example. At its most basic level, I think. This seems to have come to represent an entire generation, it seems, where the image of success has become more real, so to speak, than actually delivering something of substance. For Billy McFarlane, this was beautifully illustrated by the emphasis on the social media marketing campaign rather than on the logistics of actually pulling off a music festival. But by then, the trap had been set. McFarlane had tapped into the primitive part of the human brain using an incredibly effective technology and was able to sell a completely unrealistic fantasy to thousands of people using, again, the most basic form of human psychology. So getting back to the millennial thing, no, I don't think this event represents anything specific to one group of people because all of us have these basic drives, regardless of age. I think that the older we get, however, the more conscious of them we become, which made younger people so susceptible to this fraud. But when it comes to this deadly combination between social belonging and the ways we signal it, namely through things like music, we have a recipe to be reeled into scams. So, you know what I was thinking of, Jessica? Do you remember um, Woodstock 99? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, that, yeah. That was like the Gen X version of Fire Festival to me. Yeah, I would agree. Okay, but now that Woodstock 99 wasn't 500 people on an island. We were talking 400,000 people Whoa. who bought some very expensive tickets. You know, back then in 1999, $150 was a lot for a concert ticket. Yeah, I would have never paid that back then. Yeah. And of course, everything broke down fairly quickly. People got price gouged for everything, including $10 burritos, 
you know, $4 bottles of water. Which, which right can, now doesn't sound like that much, but back then was a lot of money. Yeah, back then in 99, <laughs> that was a lot of money. You know, that was a lot more in 99 than it is today. Yeah. And basic amenities like toilets and drinking fountains broke down. Naturally, people started getting really angry and they started rioting. And that's what the Gen X Woodstock is remembered for. We, the Gen Xers, were sold this idea to belong to this exclusive group to be at this raging party with all these very cool bands. And it turned out to be a corporate financed sham. And the concert goers destroyed the place. Yeah. Or if you want to go even further back, talk about the Altamont Music Festival in 1969 that was supposed to be the West Coast version of Woodstock, where one person was stabbed to death by a Hell's Angel who was acting as a security officer there at the concert. Literally, this happened 20 feet in front of Mick Jagger while the Rolling Stones were performing. And then there was the other part where one of the Hells Angels who was doing security knocked out the lead singer of Jefferson Airplane. And the Grateful Dead saw this happening and said, you know what, we're we're good. We're going to leave. So these concert debacles are not anything new. No, because again, it's playing into the exact same basic form of psychology. Right. The difference is how it was done this particular time with social media, which is such an effective technology to reel people in. And And it's more effective than any other technology, I think, before it. Yeah, I would agree. So again, it's not hard to find examples of any generation being sucked into this desire to belong to a social group as expressed through something like music. The main difference with Fire Festival is that this seemed to be the first time that social media played such a large part in the marketing and promotion of the event. And when I say social media, of course, I mean digital social media like Instagram, Facebook, right? Right. Online marketing. But again, we have the same psychological principles at work here. Only now we have a technology that captures these psychological drives so much more effectively than radio or TV could in the past. And this gets back to how quickly information can be spread in the digital age versus technology such as the telephone, which took years and years to diffuse amongst the populace. Today we can do this in days, which was one of the points that Dr. Louie and Dr. Rob talked about in the interview. So no, I do not blame millennials for this whole thing. I think it's a lesson on how this kind of technology can so easily capture the most basic drives of our deepest and primitive psychology, all of us. And it's a wake-up call about how we allow ourselves to engage with this technology and how it can affect our psychology so powerfully. Yeah, I mean, it's just such an interesting event. I mean, it just draws people in and it begs to be kind of picked apart and analyzed. And, you know, this was one of the episode ideas that we've wanted to do for quite a while. Um, So it's been really kind of fun talking about it and rewatching the documentaries and, you know, reading articles and books and whatnot. So if you're interested in any of the books that we discussed or, or the documentaries that we discussed on this episode, we'll have links to those on the discussion page of our website at psychologyafterdark.com. You can also leave your thoughts or comments there if, if you're so inclined. You can find us on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Psychology After Dark. So make sure to like and follow us there. And as always, if you're enjoying our podcast, please leave us a five-star rating. We really appreciate that. We're actually routinely in the top 100 social science podcasts on Apple Podcasts in the United States, and we've been in the top 50 quite a bit lately. And that's thanks to all of you. There are thousands of social science podcasts out there, so we are pretty excited about that. So thank you guys so much for listening, for subscribing, 
uh, for reaching out to us, for the ratings, for the reviews. We appreciate all of you, and we will be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode. Thanks for joining us. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McConnell. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskus, both provided by Gemendo.